in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ha! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Gabby Dunn here, bad with money, but running for president in 2020. No, I'm not. Would I run against Kanye? I mean, I don't know. As you guys may have noticed, oh, this is painful to say, 
Donald Trump is the president. <sighs> and a lot of that has to do with his ability to sell himself to the electorate as a visionary businessman, a master of quote-unquote deals, who's going to get our creaky old government running like his supposedly prosperous real estate business, the one he's supposedly no longer involved with. And look, this isn't a politics podcast. I mean, secretly, it kind of is. I don't know if you guys have picked up on that, but theoretically, at least, we're here to talk about money. But politics and money are intertwined, always have been since the beginning of politics. And the thing I want to explore today is why the idea of a businessman, quote unquote, and running government, quote, like a business is so appealing to people. This week, we're looking at the points where our cultural mythology around financial success and political prowess intersect, or in Donald Trump's case, collide in a fiery collision of doom and hatred and idiocy. But again, this isn't a politics podcast. To start, I spoke to Helene Olin. I'm a huge fan of Helene. When I first heard about her, I went down a rabbit hole just watching videos of her speak on YouTube. Helene is the author of a book called Pound Foolish, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry, which I've devoured. And she's written extensively about our misplaced assumption that private companies have our best interests at heart. By the way, this is the new me. I'm reading books like Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. Yep. I'm reading finance fucking books. Who am I? But all of this work that Helene's done has made her extremely qualified to help me understand why people are so reliably seduced by the idea of a candidate who promises to run the government like a business. Well, you know, that's one of those things that sounds like a lot of common sense of, you know, of course you want things to run well, right? And there's always this assumption that business runs well. Taking that statement for granted for a moment, um, which is not necessarily true as we all know, in fact, government isn't a business, right? Businesses need to make money. If it doesn't make money, at some point it has to shut down, no matter how good, no matter how worthy, no matter how much the product it's selling is needed, okay? Um, this isn't true of government. Government has to help everybody. That's the primary job of government. That means making our lives better. That doesn't mean making a profit. Or making people a profit, Right. I mean, it is about us instead of the individual or the individual business. And that's a big difference. I mean, obviously, it is there to make our daily lives better as individuals. But ultimately, it has responsibility for all of us. And that includes whether we are a you know, billion-dollar earner, like Donald Trump claimed he was, or we're living on a Social Security check. What's funny is that they're like running government like a business, but businesses fail. I mean, we also have this thing where people say, oh, you know, your grandma managed her budget. Why can't the government, right? That's also a completely false analogy. That doesn't work either. Grandma didn't get to control her own money supply. So what role do you think Trump's identity as a successful private businessman played into his appeal? Like, I feel like that was like a huge misunderstanding that a lot of people liked. Well, let's start with a basic fact. Um, Trump, to the best of anybody's knowledge, was not a particularly successful businessman. What he did was inherit a real estate empire here in New York City that was put together by his dad, Fred. So Trump did not necessarily build a real estate empire from scratch. Second, Trump's business empire um, has collapsed into bankruptcy court more times than I can count. 
Um, in fact, by the time he got The Apprentice on the air, and I think that's 2004, 2005, somebody would have to check my numbers here, um, he was basically a marketing organization where he was shoving his name on things and other people were managing it. Okay, this is not, this is a business, but it's not the business he's projecting. And he essentially became a self-generated marketing mechanism. And The Apprentice then sort of fed that along. So Trump talks a lot about deals and his book was called Art of the Deal. And it's all like, you know, he talks a big game about I make a bunch of deals and I'm really good at deals. And and he relates deals to like treaties almost or like, oh, he's going to meet with foreign leaders and the deals are going to be great. What do you think people are imagining when he says deals? I think at this point, people are beginning to realize the reality, which is that Trump is and always was a con man, right? That first and foremost, Trump's uh, major uh, interest was the enrichment of Donald Trump, and that a lot of his, quote, deals were BS. So hopefully that's what they're increasingly imagining. But I think somehow it goes back to this idea of government as a business, which, again, it's not, right? A business does have the option of saying my way or the highway. They might ultimately fold, but they can do that. This is not how government works. And it also goes back to this idea that Trump is somehow some master businessman, which is absolutely, completely untrue. He's not bringing any superior negotiating skills to the table. It's just manipulation and a con. And I think looking at poll numbers, people are increasingly figuring this out. So the idea of the mogul, which seems to be like this thing of somebody who's smarter than everyone or somebody who, I mean, speaking as someone who... I when I wrote my article for Fusion about the problems being a, a YouTuber and making money, I got so many emails, particularly from men, saying, "Well, this is what you should do, and this is how I would be a billionaire if I did this, and like this is the way that you subvert the system, and this like or you make it work for you more than subvert it, you make it work for you, or like this is how you should make tons of money." But like a lot of the ones that I knew in real life, they kind of didn't. They weren't doing that for themselves, and I, they just, like, thought that they had these ideas. And, and I think that's a similar way that people think about the mogul is, like, oh, I could have been that, but it's just, like, this idea. Or, or it's, like, they're so much smarter than me. They must have some sort of godlike quality. I mean, how do people in America view the mogul? In a country like ours that kind of valorizes entrepreneurial efforts, which we do, I think in some ways it's similar to the appeal of a generalissimo type, right? I'm going to come in and I'm going to make the trains run on time, uh, to use the Mussolini uh, analogy, right? And I think there's just this sense of all that all too many of us have is that a businessman, right, can do this because they make it work for their business. And of course, it's an easy to grasp analogy. And people are generally living their lives, right? They're not really thinking about these issues that much. Is this version of success that Trump supposedly embodies, is that, that I mean, he's marketed more than lived, is that something that is actually accessible to most people? Of course not. You take into account the fact that we live in the United States, where we have significantly less income mobility than the Europeans, and that we still have some deep economic structural issues. And of course, it's not achievable for many, many people. Yeah. And like, I mean, he got a start with already having a family that was in business. And I don't know, there's just this weird thing about like, well, it's a meritocracy and everyone who, you know, is successful deserves it because they must have some sort of goodness or some sort of knowledge that we don't have. 
and they're like ignoring the structural system that's keeping them from that. And and it's weird. It's weird to be like, oh, he's he's a sick like a aspirational thing when it's like you can't you're not going to get there. Right. I mean, Americans live in great denial about this. I mean, I remember when Romney was campaigning for president in 2012. And I think he was talking about how entrepreneurs get ahead. And he told this group of college students, you know, go ahead, start that business, borrow $10,000 from mom and dad. And it was like, wow. I mean, you know, almost half the American population couldn't come up with 500 bucks if they had to. They're not lending their kids $10,000. This is absurd. But it's, it's this myth that we somehow believe that this is completely accessible to people. I mean, he also ran based on like this idea that he was this corporate master. Like why, why didn't that connect with people? Was he too, I don't know, like why was Trump able to sell the idea and he wasn't? Well, I think some of it is, is Trump, you know, was a popular figure in our consciousness for a very long time. Mitt Romney was not. Mitt Romney was also running against Barack Obama. Um, Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. Um, the anger over the economy in 2012 was probably somewhat different than it was in 2016. Um, the memories of 2008 were closer. There was still more blame going to the Republican Party than there is now. Trump talks about jobs in American companies and like how they're sending their jobs overseas because of restrictive regulations that he wants to do away with. Is there any reason he's right about that? Or like, what are these regulations? What, what's the real reason he would want to get rid of them? Well, I mean, Trump is you know, right and wrong. I mean, there's obviously, you know, huge damage was done over the years by these trade agreements. There's no question about that. And the fact is, is as necessary as they might have been, yes, greater protections for American workers and more retraining probably should have been put in at the get-go. Chances are incredible in many ways it's too late to fix that sort of damage right now, right, in terms of the manufacturing jobs. What Trump is really missing, though, is that the jobs increasingly now are service-related, and these are different issues. So, for example, the New York Times had a story this weekend pointing out that we have lost in retail more jobs in the past several months than um, there is altogether in areas like coal mining, right? He's not discussing this. And this is something, you know, we're all a part of. We all order products online, right? We do it constantly. It's efficient for us. There are reasons we are doing it. But it's something that needs to be discussed. And yet from Trump, dead silence. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's because retail is more of a female industry. That's my conspiracy theory. So women uh, working in retail. I, I happen to agree with you. It's both more female and um, also much more minority. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering right, it's about 50-50 male-female and about, you know, a significantly higher proportion of minorities than, say, coal mining. And there's no question in my mind that that's part of this. And that's like the loss of retail jobs should be like huge. But instead, I guess why? Because coal mining has like money or or it's like an industry that I, I, I don't know. I It's like a more concentrated industry or something. Why? I would also suspect that when the going was good and the unions were strong, 
it was a decent paying job, okay? I don't know the exact dynamics of, of coal mining and the money going in and out, but certainly, to, you know, I could talk about it from a manufacturing base, right? Factories, when I was growing up, especially in the Northeast and Midwest, were still basically unionized. These were pretty good jobs. They paid pretty well. Retail doesn't pay so well. We all know that, right? It pays often pays a little bit more than minimum wage. It's very unsteady. People come and go. If you work, say, at a restaurant, which is not quite retail but related, places like McDonald's have, you know, close to 100% turnover on an annual basis. I, I mean, I could go on. I mean, these are a, a different, different jobs, and they they really do raise different issues, but it is interesting that he doesn't discuss it at all. How is it possible, like, for people whose communities have been victimized by corporate capitalism to believe that someone whose whole brand is corporate capitalism can be their champion? Like, how did this whole disconnect happen? I guess that's what I think is so weird. I don't see it as particularly weird. I see it as... In many ways, the uh, Democratic Party wasn't really addressing a lot of these issues either. Um, they certainly were addressing them to an extent. Um, it's certainly not what we're dealing with now. But it wasn't as if they were in, you know, in these communities doing constant outreach, you know, offering up um, you know, help. They were kind of forgotten. I mean, that's the thing. The concentration and the focus really was on you know, the upper middle classes and the more solidly middle class places. It's not a coincidence that places like New York and Los Angeles lead heavily Democrat, but you get outside into like the suburbs of New York City or the exurbs like Suffolk County on Long Island or upstate, and they go, um, they turn Republican real fast. Yeah, but he's not even really a Republican. Right. Well, he took over the party, right? I mean, that was the thing. It happened on the other side, too. Bernie Sanders it came pretty close. I mean, this was I know. An issue he's not even parties. a Democrat. I mean, consider yourself lucky Donald Trump didn't decide to run as a Democrat. You know, it wasn't like people in the Democratic Party were dying of happiness either. Yeah, but, oh, man, that would have been – you just blew my mind with the idea of him running Democrat. I mean, I don't quite see it as happening either, but <laughs> – well, why why did it know. work with Re mean, why did it work with Republicans then? Because, because of money? No, because well in part, right? Cuz it was all the amount of money floating around. Because he said things people wanted to hear. I mean, you'd watch these early debates, right? And all of these candidates up there were basically in some sort of competition for who could throw grandma off the train faster in terms of cutting social security. And then you would, you know, Donald Trump got up there and said, I won't cut Social Security. Well, guess who, you know, people gravitated to. Now, of course, that might have been a pile of horse garbage, given who Donald Trump is and what, you know, how he says one thing and then does something else. But the fact is, is it was something people wanted to hear and they responded to it. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know. The whole, like, economic anxiety thing is like... Uh... I part of it maybe, but I'm like, ah, I think it's a lot of like real good old fashioned Islamophobia and sexism. I don't think you can separate it out. I, I think, as I like to say, you know, it, it's sort of like how paranoids have enemies. You know, you can be racist and have legitimate economic problems. Um, I also think as a greater point I like to make to people um, it's not a great thing to say from the vantage point of New York City or Los Angeles. Um, it has a tendency to come off as condescending and feeds into the exact narrative of why they don't really like 
um, people like, say, me. Um, it, it's not a good narrative because if you take that frame, ultimately, you end up with, oh, okay, then we're just doomed because if people are just simply voting on their basest instincts and that's what won the election, what elections are we planning to win in the future? I don't know. I have a lot of I, I know it seems very like, oh, you're this L.A. elite, whatever, and you don't get it. But like I see a lot of trouble with ignoring that it wasn't just jobs or economic whatever. Like it was a lot of willingness to believe any news story that came out about a woman and then people being like, yeah, let's get rid of Mexicans and Muslims. Seems good to me. Or just not care or like the idea that like that kind of stuff did not matter versus their own job like that's a weird murky area i don't oh, know I, I don't i completely agree and i certainly yeah. don't want to downplay it don't get me wrong yeah but i would say you also have to ask some of these people did vote for obama in 2008 and 2012 so what potentially changed in their lives and because Objectively speaking, at least some of them, even if you're going to take the position that they were voting on racism, objectively speaking, some of them didn't do that four or eight years ago. And you have to ask what the difference is. And I'm not sure anybody is really in a position to answer that question right now, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked. Sometimes questions need to be asked that answers don't necessarily exist to on the spot, which is something as Americans, by the way, we don't really like to do very much. Americans are really bad at uncertainty and sort of living in nuance sometimes. And it's very hard not to pose a question that doesn't have an immediate answer and solution. And when I do this, I'm sort of posing a question that probably doesn't have an immediate answer and solution. After the break, we'll learn why Donald Trump, who often appears to be a godless degenerate with no moral compass, is actually more guided by religious philosophies than we think. Find out what the prosperity gospel is and why it enables the president to claim spiritual guidance while still getting to behave like, well, a godless degenerate in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. About a year ago, Time Magazine correspondent Elizabeth Diaz published a fascinating article called Donald Trump's Prosperity Preachers. If you're like me and cannot for the life of you figure out how a significant number of evangelical Christian conservatives voted for a rich business tycoon who's been married three times, who's flip-flopped on how he feels about abortion, and who was caught on video bragging about sexual assault, this piece that Elizabeth wrote goes a long way towards an explanation. It has to do with a bizarre strain of Christianity known as the prosperity gospel. It is this idea, this theological idea uh, in many churches, not just in the U.S., but around the world, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. So economic success is viewed as a sign of God's blessing, and that is not um, uncontroversial in many Christian circles especially. Prosperity gospel actually started in the United States in the early 1900s with a group of disenfranchised black preachers uh, trying to find how they can have a voice in uh, Christianity in the U.S. that was dominated mostly by white pastors, um, white people. The irony is that halfway through the last century, prosperity gospel took hold in white churches. There are now a lot of uh, very prominent white prosperity gospel preachers. And there's a range of 
belief within prosperity gospel. So you can talk about sort of a soft prosperity gospel belief. Pastors like Joel Osteen and Paula White have been classified more in that. It's more of a a self-help, self-realization type of Christianity. I mean, these pastors hate the term prosperity gospel. Um, I haven't met someone yet who, if an academic would say, oh, you're in the prosperity gospel tradition, I haven't met anyone that would own that title. But then there are preachers who are like very hardline, explicitly preaching about money, and they call it their seed money. Like, if you give me a seed, if you sow a gift of money to my ministry, then God will bless you. And there have been exposés about how this has led to, you know, preachers just having million-dollar jets that they can fly around Oh, you around see that in, all the and... time. They're, like, super well-dressed, preaching to, like, you know— thousands of people in auditoriums and everyone paid so much money to be there and they're like I'm the messenger you know from God and I'm telling you that like you being here is important and but then they're the they're like rich preachers essentially right it's it's a pretty surprising message given that Jesus was someone who said you know it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God What's so weird is the way that religion has become so tied up in politics and money and the way that religion, like, and it doesn't almost doesn't have to do with Jesus anymore, like as Jesus actually was. It goes back to people viewing a candidate like Donald Trump must fall under the prosperity gospel. He must be wealthy because he's good. Right. And Donald Trump, you know, fascinating for many reasons and his rise to the White House Uh, But when you look at the traditional role of social conservatives and religious groups in Republican politics, there's always this idea of, you know, how is the candidate going to give a testimony uh, of usually his relationship to Jesus? And they're always waiting for that. Well, Donald Trump did not have the usual uh, testimony, Uh, you know, the thrice married leader who didn't really know how to even name books of the Bible while there was the whole... I mean, he still hasn't picked a church. He still hasn't picked a church in D.C. Yep. And what's fascinating is his testimony didn't have to be about all of those things, right? His testimony could be an economic message. And his, for him, you know, his economic success is the truest sign of God's blessing. His economic success is the truest sign of God's blessing. So he doesn't need to have a personal relationship to God and he doesn't need to prove that he's going to church. That's wild. At least that's not how he needs to explain it to a populist base that understands that language, right? They're hearing something different, right? And they see different signs of God's touch on a leader. So is Trump like a prosperity preacher? I think there are a lot of parallels, you could say. Uh, Certainly he grew up um, in in Norman Vincent Peale's church, and that was more of a, a self-help, self-realization type of gospel on the, the softer side of prosperity. Growing up, Trump's family attended Peale's church, Marble Collegiate in Manhattan, um, and Trump actually married his first wife there and even hosted Peale's 90th birthday party at the Waldorf Astoria in the late 80s. Peale, you know, is just amazingly influential in American spirituality during 
those that that 50 year period for sure i mean sort of like you think of billy graham and you think of norman vincent peale two different traditions um and cultivating different kinds of christianity some would say it's hard to sort of read the tea leaves sometimes onto donald trump's personal spiritual life uh but as a ch- he has talked about as a child going there and that being influential for him this is so interesting for me to hear, I think, and I think a lot of people, I just assumed Trump was an atheist or like I, the -hmm. idea, because he hadn't, he hasn't fixed a a church. He hasn't been like super outwardly religious the way a lot of candidates have been and have been forced to be. I mean, people were like on Obama's ass to like be real into Jesus. And like, um, and like, you know, Mitt Romney suffered for being a Mormon and stuff like people really care. But like, I've always got the impression. So it's interesting to hear that he's got this history with preachers, because I always assumed that he was some sort of atheist, if only because he, of the sort of moral um, gray area he exists in business wise. And also like the moral gray area he exists in with regards to kindness towards others, uh, which are sort of like basic tenets of, of Christianity. So I'm just like, so confused to hear that he kind of has this history with religion. The relationships that he's built with preachers certainly helped him on the campaign trail. Uh, I mean, that that was a practical decision, I think, in many ways. But that said, if he appreciates and personally experiences religion or God or in any kind of way, I, it seems to be more outside a traditional church setting, right? Like preaching in a non-traditional medium, right? Like that really, I can see that appealing to him. It's so funny. Uh, Trump has said he loves watching televangelists, right? I mean, Paula White, who's been very close to him, um, and she is one of the only women actually to lead her own mega ministry in the United States. Uh, and she's down in Florida. They've been friends since 2002. They became friends because Trump saw her uh, giving a sermon on television about the value of vision. And so he co- cold called her and uh, just told her what a great job she did and could they meet and could they have lunch and could they talk. And that started their friendship, um, which I find fascinating because from what we know about Donald Trump, he doesn't he he values um, his family very close. Like he doesn't have a lot of friends and a big network of people. So it's really interesting to me that Paula White, who many identify in a soft prosperity gospel tradition, has been one of his good friends. I mean, she bought a condo in one of his buildings in New York and has told me about how she would lead Bible studies in New York in the last 15 years and how he would go. And so when Donald Trump was thinking in 2011 about running for president, he called her and had her come to New York and gather the ministers, as she told me, and pray for him, which they did. And those were many ministers in her circle in this this theological tradition. And then at the end, Paula told me, you know, Trump asked her, you know, what do you think I should do? And she essentially said she she didn't think the time was right. At the Republican convention in Cleveland this summer, um, I was having breakfast with Paula and the Trump kids were at the table just next to us. And it was the morning after Eric Trump had gone up to speak to address the whole convention. And he grabs her on her way out and he says, Paula, you know, you know your prayer did it. And I'm thinking, what, what did Paula's prayer do? 
And turns out, you know, he's like, Paula, the teleprompter went out 15 minutes, like right before I was supposed to go up, but you prayed and the prompter came back on and I was able to give my talk. And so she has a very close relationship with the whole family. And my impression is that uh, they see her prayers and her relationship with God that spiritual connection is something that they've really seen as a blessing on his campaign. Okay, so she can pray for the teleprompter to go on. Can she pray for, like, low-income people to have health care? <laughs> like, you do know what I mean? Like, it's this very weird thing to me. I'm always trying to learn how how people square that, right? Um, and how, you know, you're, you're right, you can pray for many different kinds of things. And Sometimes the prayers get answered and sometimes they don't. And how do you live in that? Like, is it only God answering you if it's something that like outwardly looks really great for you? Does that mean God is not a, not real, not a thing, doesn't love you? That's tricky. Okay, so let's back up to your, your piece. Um, who is Mark Burns and what was his role in the Trump campaign? So Mark Burns, no one had heard of Pastor Mark Burns until Donald Trump. Um, I remember just... When I first heard all this buzz about a pastor from Easley, South Carolina, that was introducing Trump on the campaign trail, and I'm thinking, I have never heard of this person. So I called him after watching some of his rallies, and uh, he would, I distinctly remember March of last year, he introduced Trump on the campaign trail, this big rally, and his introduction um, was, you know, very loud, and he, he was praying. Really, he was prophesying, right, which is a big thing in prosperity gospel. Um, he said, Lord, this will be the greatest Tuesday that has ever existed. Come Super Tuesday 3. And then he said, there's no black person, there's no white person, there's no yellow person, there's no red person. There's only green people. Green is money. Green is money. Green are jobs. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a new prosperity preacher from the grassroots in South Carolina. That is the connection for so many people between what Donald Trump's big message of success and success for you, make America great again, can be. And then you have a pastor talking about we're united because of money. So he um, made a big name for himself during the campaign and eventually led a prayer at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, super controversial because it was very partisan. And normally preachers tend to, you know, the, the idea is they should be sort of independent. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give the benediction. You know why? Because we are electing a man in Donald Trump who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. And Republicans, we got to be united because our enemy is not other Republicans, but it's Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party. The thing with prosperity gospel and actually with a lot of Pentecostal preachers, too, is you can name it and claim it. You can say, you know, God is going to make Donald Trump president or Trump is president, even though he's not. But then you're like enacting it by saying it. Yeah, like the secret. And like, who said that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy? That is a good question. Um, but it's the so prosperity preachers interpret the Bible 
differently than Christians and other traditions might. Uh, and there are verses that they point to that they say, oh, this is where this comes from, even though there are other Christians who would say no, right? So, for example, there's a verse uh, Jesus said, you know, I've come that they may have life and to have life abundantly. So they would interpret that to abundant life, meaning financial blessing. It's a theological tradition, but the thing is that that can be seen as cherry-picking verses, right? I mean, you can you can pick anything and then create a bigger ideology from that. Yeah, I mean, so what's in it for the people looking at it or watching it or the people who voted for Trump because they believe that Jesus had blessed him with money and success? Like, what's in it for them? What are they thinking in your experience? Well, I think the people who voted for Trump are not all the same as people who believe prosperity gospel for themselves. I think in the end, this tradition ended up being a part of the Trump coalition, but certainly not the whole thing. I mean, the Republican Party was super fractured. And in a way, like for many people, choosing Trump was a default choice. Uh, but for this populist uprising in the U.S., right, this idea, make America great again, to see a leader right. who... Has Which is financial. That is financial and that is jobs-based because he's like, right. oh, I'm a, I'm a businessman. Exactly, right? And the idea is if you get someone like that at the top who can lead you and you can you sort of feed off of one another's success. It's a reason, too, that I find it so interesting um, that Donald Trump has never and probably will not release his tax returns. I mean, this, this whole question of how wealthy really is he? And that is something that I have seen in reporting about the prosperity gospel tradition is that it's the illusion of wealth sometimes more than it is actually having it. Although many of these preachers are incredibly wealthy. I mean, because they, they make money, oh gosh, through so many different avenues, um, through conferences, through sermon sales, through television, through radio, through speaking. It's just the motivational speaking. And then at that level, you can get really, really high fees. It seems like there are a lot of parallels between the way prosperity gospel preachers like have their own networks and, um, you know, market to their audiences really directly and the way that Trump sort of did the same thing by using Twitter or not really needing to go through mainstream channels to get the message out. I definitely think that there are parallels in the strategy. I see it more as Trump emerging from this type of tradition and having valued it at key points along the way. And... So then, therefore, the, the, a lot of the impulses and things that they do in terms of how they work and how they reach people, that ends up being pretty similar. But you're absolutely right. I mean, prosperity gospel, and not just prosperity gospel, but televangelism in general and preachers like that, they have a whole other way of reaching people. And with the advent of the internet and the ease of setting up television and radio stations on your own, being able to go outside the network... That's key. I mean, that's exactly what Trump did. Uh, he he sidestepped the main traditional streams of how you how you're supposed to win a campaign and then govern a country. It's a real shift, uh, or another marker in this shift of direct to consumer politics and then direct to consumer spirituality. Yeah, but if this evangelical base is voting for him, why aren't they holding him to evangelical standards? Honestly. Power does, I mean, they won. <laughs> they won. Um, and there's a lot of happy social conservative leaders in Washington right now because they just got 
Neil Gorsuch named the Supreme Court bench. I mean, that's a big win for them. They're trying very hard to defund Planned Parenthood. Trump started off not having social conservatives favor. He wasn't even really a social conservative. Right. Well, this is the thing. Like he, he, Ted Cruz had all of those people and Marco Rubio was fighting for them too at the beginning. And so they all had to figure out, oh my gosh, like this is not the type of leader we anticipated, uh, but how do we transform this from an election that's all about personality to one that's about policy? So they can kind of sidestep that. And so then they made it, as we all know now, like all about the Supreme Court and repealing the Johnson Amendment, which is uh, would allow churches and 501c3s to uh, be politically active, even though they would keep tax-exempt status. So again, that's all about money. So how does, because you said it started with, with black preachers, how does this association with the prosperity gospel affect Trump's outreach and, and favor within minority communities, does it? I think it absolutely does. I mean, there's a real reason that Mark Burns, the pastor we were talking about from Easley, South Carolina, who's introducing Trump on the campaign trail um, and at the RNC, you know, he's black and there is an absolute reason why he was a great face for advocating Trump's message. And Daryl Scott, uh, also a black preacher, was working during the campaign to build Trump's diversity coalition, which admittedly was much smaller than Hillary Clinton's diversity coalition. But when people ask, you know, why why did higher numbers of African-American and Hispanic voters vote for Trump than one might have expected, not saying those numbers are large, but there was a higher number than some might have expected. Many can point to this spiritual impulse um, and the kind of collection of things that goes with it. I guess I'd say, too, that it's not just limited to Republican politics. I know many Black prosperity preachers in the soft prosperity gospel tradition who were about them at the DNC supporting Hillary Clinton, right? So it, then that, to me, was a sign, okay— This is a cultural movement, um, broad-based, multiracial, that is influencing more than just like a narrow slice of politics. And it's interesting, Paula White, who's Trump's friend uh, and a, a pastor of a large church down in Florida, most of her congregation is actually black and she's white. So if you think about Sunday morning in America as usually being the most segregated time in the country... There is a level of um, crossover here that's worth paying attention to. Next up, we'll meet someone who came face to face with the myth of modern American prosperity in painfully public fashion. Talia Jane says it's time for the millennial working class to sound the alarm. Find out why after the break. Last year, Talia Jane was working in the customer support department at Eat24, the online food ordering service that's part of Yelp. You've used it. You've used it when you're drunk. Yelp is a company that is valued at over $2 billion. One night, Talia was at home in her apartment, and she happened to open a company-wide email from Yelp CEO Jeremy Stoppelman. The email's intention was to trumpet how fantastic and profitable Yelp is. But as Talia explained last year at XOXOFest, it didn't sit right with her. 
I was waiting for this pot of rice to boil, drinking water because my stomach hurt because I hadn't actually had a proper meal in about two weeks. My hands were shaking, and I realized this isn't normal. Talia was upset. In her mind, she and her fellow customer service employees weren't getting much of a share of Yelp's apparent success. Elsewhere in her XOXO Fest talk, she describes coworkers qualifying for public housing and then realizing they couldn't afford to take time off work to move. So Talia decided to speak out. She published an open letter to the company's CEO on Medium. Before she knew it, the letter had gone viral, landing her story at the center of a Fox News segment called, I'm not kidding, The Wussification of America, which sounds like a parody of a Fox News segment. Well, it all started when a Yelp employee named Talia Jane posted a scathing letter to her company's CEO, writing, quote, I haven't bought groceries since I started this job because 80% of my income goes to paying rent. And I'm withering away from putting all into a company that doesn't have my back. The letter cost Jane her job. But Talia's firing from Eat24 didn't shut her up. She says it's more important than ever to speak out about a living wage because we're existing in a time where young people are perceived as having it all or wanting to have it all or being entitled to having it all when in reality, a lot of them are barely scraping by. Companies are increasingly attempting to attract this sort of corporate culture vibe where they have like nap corners and ping pong tables. Um, And then on the other side of it is middle America that sees these companies. They see these big flashy cities and they say, well, you know, that guy, he lives there. Therefore, he's doing better than me. But the city of New York has a higher minimum wage than the federal minimum wage. So someone living in Texas might be earning seven twenty five and someone living in New York is earning eleven. But the person living in New York is facing extreme rent costs. It's just like this disconnect where we see cities and we automatically think glitz and glam. And we see young and we automatically think they are fine because their back doesn't hurt all the time. I saw something. I can't remember if it's a majority of San Francisco school teachers or if it's like all of them. But like no one who works in the city lives in the city except for people who are earning six figures. And it's not difficult to see that this is a problem that's not going away. It's getting worse. And just creating this sort of narrative that millennials are entitled millennials are lazy millennials are the most productive workforce i mean it's insane how much we've like millennials work like we've normalized the side hustle Mm -hmm. the idea that you have multiple jobs the idea that like unless you have like an etsy store and do postmates and do uber and have like 15 other things that you do for free then you're a piece of shit yeah so crazy when the generation before had like one job for 40 years yeah and then we have companies who come to expect this of us so they're like we're not going to pay you full-time we're not going to give you benefits because we know that you're probably working somewhere else and it's like no (laughs) i worked i was working two jobs um my second job ended in march and while i was working these two jobs it was a peak holiday season so i was working about 70 hours a week uh seven days a week And I was exhausted. I thought it was going insane. It was awful. And then people are saying, that's actually good. Like, all the pain that you feel, like, you just thinking about 
your schedule and just wanting to just die, that's good because that's making you a stronger person. No, it's not. You know what's good is getting eight hours of sleep. You know what's good is having dinner at home instead of getting a bacon, egg, and cheese at Dunkin' Donuts because it's across the street. But how entitled that are you to need eight hours of sleep? Honestly, <laughs> I can, I would go with six. You can call yeah. me entitled all you want, but like as long as I get more than four, I'm good. Right. <laughs> you know, and I was getting so- four for a cool minute. So we've talked a lot in this episode about uh, Trump's economic message and how it resonated with blue-collar people because it made them feel seen and it made them feel like Trump's personal success is something that they could aspire to. And I think that's a similar thing with Yelp where it's like the people at the top of Yelp are, are wealthy CEOs and like tech bros. And uh, and so they're making a lot of money, but it doesn't really trickle down. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I mean, do people get that? Is that like a thing that is that a thing that doesn't resonate? Because I think like a, a one person we talked to, um, this woman Elizabeth Diaz, we talked to her about prosperity gospel and how like a lot of people working where you were at Yelp would see those CEOs as like aspirational and be like, well, if I worked as hard as them, I could become them. Which is bogus. Like, does that, yeah, but because does that like resonate? I mean, I maybe with some people because that's why this uh, this issue still persists. You know, it wouldn't be an issue if it didn't resonate with half of the country. Um, with the whole concept that people see their CEOs, especially in tech companies, as people to aspire to. Stoppelman, which is the CEO at Yelp, he like his his parents taught him how to invest his money so he could afford to have the means to create this app. I'm working customer support. That's not a person I'm going to aspire to. To bring it all back, like this is why people vote uh, outside of their own interests because I right. think they think, well, one day I will be like Stoppelman. You right. Know? I think I saw an article by, I think it was Sadie Doyle. Um, she wrote an article describing Trump as what a poor person aspires to be. It's not what an actual rich person is. It's like this this image where... Well, you know, if I was rich, I would have an, an entire apartment made out of gold and I would right. live in the top of a tower. And well, Trump has that. But. Yeah, exactly. No. So, so like he's he's this image of what blue collar workers would want to be if they won the lottery versus what an actual wealthy person is. I think the issue is that we try and sell the concept of an American dream that's not realistic. And there are people who hold on to that because that's pretty much all they've got Uh, but i think maybe there's more images i'm just like uh, being a a sociologist on my off time but like i think like there's more images of you know things to aspire to like they're like like uh like kendall and and kylie jenner the kardashian like no there's it's it's, it's, it all feeds into each other we have reality tv we have what is it mark zuckerberg he's like trying he's low-key like running up uh, trying campaign. to run for office, right? Some some nonsense like that. And I would vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because I'm awful. I would, I would vote for him if he changed his clothes because he has like he's got oh. that Steve Jobs thing. No, it's just it's just such an obnoxious part of tech. Well, I'm gonna do the Steve Jobs thing. I'm gonna wear the same shirt every day. Like it it, it, <sighs> it eliminates it makes your brain frees up brain power. That's sure what it I've does. heard. Sure, it but does. look, I'm saying right. So you're selling an image that right. that's true or not or whatever. But like, and that image, I think people and it's dangerous see that it people as are something, buying into it. 
Yeah, they buy into it and they think that that's something they can aspire to. And then when someone like you pulls the curtain back, I think they're also embarrassed. No, I definitely think that there was an aspect uh, in the reaction that it was fear. It was like, that can't be true, even though all the data suggests and confirms it. They're like, that can't be true because it goes against everything that... I want to believe in and I definitely and they want to believe that for themselves so they go like that's what I'm saying like they yeah. vote against their interests or right. they go they they rail against you someone who is fighting for their interests yeah no there was actually a segment on Fox News about me that they called the wussification of America and I'm like bitch I spoke up what are you yeah, talking exactly. about? What are you talking about the wussification no one else said anything no one else is talking about this So, okay, it seems like a significant part of the reason older people don't understand why millennials are speaking up is that culture expects millennials to play by economic rules based on the old economy while they're working in a new one. Right. So after everything that happened to you, what have you seen that that needs to change? We have to kind of hone the message because when I was trying to search for data to provide for this, there's so much going on. There's so many little things. And, you know, we have com- we have we have organizations like Fight for 15 that's saying, like, we want a $15 minimum wage. It's a very specific, it's a very unified thing. Like, it's an umbrella that a lot of things can fall under. And we need to really focus on finding and propping up organizations or people who are willing to push this message. And the problem, I think, is that we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves trying to explain all these details without you know, looking back to make sure that people are seeing the big picture. Well, it's this thing that I keep fighting in my own head, which is like there's this element of like personal responsibility versus actual like political change and uprising that needs to happen. But that can only happen if people like speak up and don't have this shame and don't think that they deserve what they're getting. Yeah. No, there's this definite bootstraps mentality that is just so bogus. Like if you have cancer... You can't pull bootstraps up to cure your cancer, you know? And we have to think of our, like, national economy as a sort of, like, it's a body. And if it is sick in one part, like, that's going to affect everything else. So when I first heard about the prosperity gospel, I was fascinated because it ties into this idea that we've talked about a lot on Bad With Money, which is that people that have money have earned it in a way that makes them moral and good and better than everyone else and smarter than everyone else. And that having money is a sign that you are working hard enough and are a good person and that not having money is some sort of like moral problem. You are in poverty because you are a bad person and you are dumb and you have made bad decisions. And that kind of thing, that thinking, is what got Trump elected. And that is why people raked Talia over the coals because her poverty and her inability to make a living was perceived as some sort of intelligence and moral failure on her part and on the part of all millennials. And so all of these ideas are tied together. And that's what Talia's story shows, is that it is fear. It is scary to address systemic issues. And it is scary to think that a lot of this stuff is not in your control. And when you realize things are out of your control, you get scared and you lash out. People who are like you or people who are trying to make the world a better place for you, they become the whipping boy for your fear. 
But if you are truly anxious about not having a job or you're anxious about living in poverty and trying to figure out how to get out of poverty, I can see how you would vote for someone who's a businessman who you think has some secret knowledge that we don't have. And Trump and people like him know that that's how we think and they exploit it to get what they want. Don't let them. And also the word entitled means nothing anymore. I think we should ban the word entitled. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who live a life of abundance and prosperity, graciously clearing the path for the rest of us through the magic of trickle-down economics, which is totally a real thing, according to them. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blundell. I'm Gabby Dunn. Did I say my name correctly? I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week.